0: This is Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. Today's episode is sponsored by Health Innovation Media. We bring your brand messaging alive on the ground and now in the virtual space for major trade show, conference, or innovation summits via our signature Pop-Up Studio. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.com. Productions. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media, publisher of acowatch.com, and your Pop Health Week co-host with my partner, co-founder, Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. On today's show, for a roundtable of sorts, our guests are Dr. Nick Vander Hayden, Fred Goldstein, and yours truly, Greg Masters. We discuss the latest developments in the COVID-19 global pandemic. So let's get right
1: to it. So I think it's helpful perhaps to go back into a condensed timeline, which I've sourced from WHO, because this has been a relatively short-lived and rather quickly disseminating now pandemic that began with a notice on the 30th of December 2019 for a patient who presented with a pneumonia of unknown origin. And that's a surveillance definition established following the SARS outbreak of 2002, 2003. This patient was admitted to a hospital in Wuhan, China. Some 70 days later, on or about March 11th, the WHO, World Health Organization, declared the coronavirus outbreak a global pandemic, which had spread to more than 190 countries around the world. Interesting to note, the last time WHO declared a pandemic was during the 2009 H1N1 swine flu outbreak. WHO emphasized that COVID-19 is the first time a coronavirus has caused a pandemic. The 2002-2003 outbreak of SARS, which is also a coronavirus, was contained enough to avoid that classification. So The compressed timeline here is from patient zero, if you will, the index patient, to today we've seen explosive uh, exponential growth in geographic clusters emerging at their own timetable and the diffusion of this disease now around the globe. So according to the Johns Hopkins School of uh, Center for Science and Engineering, the total confirmed cases as we speak today, which is uh, May 13th. 2020. The global total confirmed cases are 4,315,679, with global death locking in at 294,879. The U.S. picture is rather dismal. Total confirmed COVID-19 cases are 1,380,465, with a death count at Eighty three thousand two hundred and forty nine. So let's just put that out there as the footprint of uh, where we stand on a global perspective. Nick, do you want to why this one is uh, different from the round of the mill stuff?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I, I would say just first off the bat, I think whilst your relating of the patient zero is accurate based on what's been reported, I think what we're learning is that that may not be patient zero, and there is likely or potentially uh, earlier cases that may have been around that we weren't aware of. Case in point, our best understanding today is that the spread of the virus in the United States actually came from the East Coast, not the West Coast, and came Round the globe from that side, not coming from China. Not that it may or did not originate uh, in China. I think we, we view that to be the case. But I think it was circulating before we actually had notice of it and we're tracking it. So this whole patient zero is extraordinarily important. And, you know, Hollywood obviously does an ex- a great job of making that point because that seems the uh, entire movie plot in many of these pandemic movies find the patient zero and you've solved the case. Not entirely true, but, you know, it's, it's a good proxy because, of course, it's important to understand that and that helps us uh, source where this virus came from. As far as what it is, well, uh, viruses different to bacteria are inert essentially, they're pieces of DNA covered in a lipid lipid, uh, or fatty kind of covering on their own they can't do much, they actually need our cells to replicate, they're much smaller than bacteria And importantly, are completely insensitive to antibiotics, one of the reasons that physicians resist treating patients that come in with flu or flu-like symptoms with bacterial treatments such as uh, penicillin or equivalent antibiotics. So that's one of the challenges that we have. We don't have much in the way of treatment options for any of the viruses, and our mainstay of treatment is actually prevention, and it's tied to vaccinations. And that's why vaccinations are so important in terms of preventing disease. They've saved probably many more lives than any other innovation that we've come up with in medicine uh, in the entire history of medicine. I'd be delighted to be corrected on that, but I doubt that that's the case. I think the value proposition of all of the vaccines that we've created has been extraordinary in terms of preventing disease. One of the challenges is, of course, that people have become a little bit complacent, I would say, with regards to vaccination, and we've certainly seen a very large misinformation campaign around them to suggest that they cause disease, which they do not, and all sorts of uh, links that have been completely disproven and are linked to people that have no standing in science, have been kicked out of the medical community for their misbehavior, what I would call just outrageous claims that are killing people. And unfortunately, in the case of coronavirus, it's new. That's the term novel. The first time that we as human beings have seen it, I think it may well have been circulating in other animals. It's certainly, we find these viruses all over the place in other animals and mammals. And in this case, it jumped somehow into the human population. It causes what looks very much like flu, but has some distinct variations to that. And that includes specifically a much higher death rate; it kills more people. Seems to tip across the uh, older age group and is linked, or worse, for patients that have chronic diseases. But in flu, that's also true, so that's not entirely unusual. It has some distinct symptoms that are quite different, and I think almost diagnostic at that point. One of them is the loss of smell and taste that seems to be linked to this disease. So. If you happen to have those symptoms associated with flu-like symptoms, it's fairly likely that you have the disease. And with this higher mortality and extraordinarily virulent, and by virulent, I mean it spreads easily, it is a significant problem, and it has spread worldwide. And as you rightly point out, Greg, this is being defined as a pandemic, and a pandemic is essentially a variation in how much something has spread and obviously at this point, I think it's worldwide. I'm not aware of any country that has managed to avoid it at this point. There may be some isolated places, but really it's hit everywhere. And to varying degrees, based on the different country reactions.
1: Which are interesting in and of themselves, and notably being the United States reaction versus what we saw in South Korea and Italy and now Spain, France, Portugal. And uh, so let's talk a little little bit about that. One of the the problems that we've had is this is a novel virus, uh, which has a disease profile that is unfolding in real time. It seems like every day we're we're learning more about its virulence and its ability to spread rather easily with an R-naught of somewhere between two to three. It has exponential DNA with an r not, meaning a replication rate of that one person affects two or three others, and that grows rather quickly. So, Fred, let me ask you this maybe from a, a population health perspective. The situation in China being top-down is quite different from the situation in the United States, which is a, a bubble up, if you will and a bubble up in an environment where senior leadership at the federal level has spent a good deal of time essentially discounting and minimizing the threat. Yet now we lead the world in cases and debt. So how would you account for that from a population health perspective? Why is the footprint and the disease occurrence so different from country to country?
3: I think it really gets back to the country's, you know, makeup, how they do things, what they consider important. And those underlying things around, you know, in the United States, we tend to have a lot more individuality than perhaps some other countries and have always been sort of that rugged individual approach. And I think that leads to, at least in this case, it makes it easier for something like this to take a hold and, you know, much harder to say, we're going to close down an area, or we're going to stop work, or we're going to shut down a system of transportation, uh, or require masks. And so th- that's really been it. You know, each country is sort of you sort of seen what that country's social makeup is like and how they how they react to things like this. So yeah, I mean, early on, I think we've obviously had some problems here in the United States. We've had this thing get pretty far out. You could see which states. I think there were some studies that showed, for example, in Washington state, they probably shut down a week earlier than New York did in a specific period of time as to when the virus was there. And so New York has a much higher rate of infections and and also has other issues. You've got a really dense population in that city. You have a transportation system that tons of people use, very close spacing in those things. And so a lot of it gets to that. And I think it's really, you know, now... It's really about how far you can move in one direction or the other, given the structure and the the social organization of the country, of any country to handle it. You saw in Italy, it was pretty late in some of those elderly communities, and they got hammered and then shut stuff down. It's it's kind of where we're at where we're at now, and now the question is, what do we do on a go-forward basis, and how do we ensure that, especially given the calls to reopen the economy and the impact we're seeing on everyday people's jobs, how do you potentially consider doing that and we're seeing again in the United States each state may be experimenting in a slightly different way as to timing and what's allowed and what's not and Given that we're learning every day, there are things we don't know. And even in the presentation before the Senate yesterday that Dr. Fauci talked about, you know, we just don't know everything. So everybody's sort of making these guesses, some based more on science, maybe some based less. But in many ways, there are things we do know, and, and there's still a lot we don't. So as we learn more, I think, you know, one of the things we're learning is there may be considerably less risk. We don't know for sure outdoors versus indoors, especially if you're spacing yourself. And so that may be something that somebody says, well, gosh, we'll open up the outdoors and keep spacing, and it may be okay, whereas clearly we know that in indoor situations that may be highly risky if you reopen that today. So I think we're still learning, and states, particularly the states, are all going to try something a little bit different. So it'll be interesting to watch over time.
1: And, Nick, let me ask you, if this death toll is finally easing, which there's some evidence of that of late. Are we out of the woods, sir?
0: And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. This COVID-19 update features Dr. Nick Vander Hayden, Fred Goldstein, and yours truly, Greg Masters. We discuss the latest developments in the COVID-19 global pandemic.
2: <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh. I, I don't mean to be flippant about it, but... Uh, <laughs> I think it's a clear response of hell no. I I feel like I need to channel my inner John Wayne and, you know, the hell it is. (laughs) uh, Unfortunately, you know, the reality of this is it's a novel coronavirus. We have so little in our armament of how we approach the challenge of both tracking, uh, tracing, and then treating people with this disease. The timeline to develop those things, even with the best possible will in the world, and all the luck that you could possibly ask for is not going to be uh, a, the presence of a vaccine in a relatively short order, which is our mainstay of, of treatment. We have barely any antiviral med- medications because we've essentially discounted that whole area of research uh, for economic reasons, It just, it failed to sort of generate enough activity, and we failed to take account of all the warning signs and uh, the warnings that were posted by people that paid attention to this for many years, multiple times that Ebola has emerged. You know, there was a point in time when Ebola arrived on the shores of the United States very briefly. There was a lot of focus, but, you know, much like everything else, it hit the news cycle. Once it died down, people stopped paying attention. We defunded everything. So our capacity to sort of fight this is severely limited. Um, That's the bad news. The good news is that we're a highly innovative set of people. Uh, We have extraordinarily bright folks who for the most part, are working together and I think we will come up with some clever, impressive solutions. Case in point, and one that I highlighted that essentially just got published recently, in fact, I think it's still a pre-published paper, but we've already discovered that anticoagulation, the thinning of blood, has a highly positive effect on outcome. An outcome in this instance is about decreasing mortality of people that are admitted to hospital and specifically admitted to ICU. Both those groups of patients reduced mortality by 50% in a study that was pre-published out of Mount Sinai in New York. That's very exciting. I know that's only half a a saving, so one in two, but given that we were looking at 70 to 80% mortality of patients being admitted to the intensive care unit for ventilation, that's a big saving. And whilst it's not uh, an endpoint in itself, it's very exciting, it offers us some hope. It also gives us some additional insights into this disease. So this is not just about respiratory systems, it turns out that it's about coagulation and clotting and throwing off clots that are causing other problems um, and other organs that are involved in this disease. So it gives us some other markers and areas to sort of focus on. I laugh not because I find any of this humorous at all, but I do uh, somewhat sadly uh, laugh at this because there is this sort of uh, desire to hope. And I don't mean to uh, depress folks, but I think we have to sort of face this realistically. And that's why it's so important as we reopen that we do so in an appropriate way that is uh, led by science If you want an example of where that's been the case, I would say New Zealand is absolutely uh, driven by science, has science that is in the leadership uh, helping guide uh, the process. And importantly, is customized based on individual circumstances. So as we open up our workplaces, we do so, the guidance of people that understand this can interpret this and are not armchair epidemiologists, armchair, armchair physicians who uh, don't fully understand all of the intricacies of this. And people derive their insights from folks that really know what they're talking about to help them guide that process. If you look at uh, South Korea, you mentioned them as one of the examples. I think they're cited as one of the places that have done a really good job. Well, guess what? They're struggling with reopening because it's not quite as simple as saying, hey, we've driven the disease out. They reopened a little bit, and they've seen an increase uh, in the number of cases. And that's true in a number of other countries. And I think we're going to have to be extraordinarily cautious, and I think we're seeing some of that already in the United States. Uh, and unless we do this in an appropriate way and have a excellent scientifically driven plan that is customized down to individual businesses, groups, and so forth, uh, we're going to look at recurring increases in this disease uh, and also the associated deaths.
3: Yeah, and I think, Nick, that raises some really interesting points. Um, one of them is, you know, you may have seen in the news Mark Cuban in this, in this uh silent shoppers that he sent in the secret shoppers that he sent around in Dallas as as businesses reopened. And uh, I hired a firm and they went out to over 300 businesses and looked at what they were doing and essentially found that um, only 36% of the businesses that chose to reopen that period, but on average, stores only followed 58% of the recommended safety protocols. So, Uh Even as you're reopening and we have all this information out there that says you should do this or maybe you should do that, it's not getting down to those individual locations and he's he noted. It. That they even had variations within chain store companies where the the corporate organization said, here's how we're going to reopen those. And they saw differences. So it really does get down to that. And I think it's also about, as you said, it's looking at what the data shows. So one of the things that's interesting in Jacksonville, as we've reopened, is that the mayor pointed to the fact that, look, we've had the stores with this social distancing. The the grocery stores open for quite a while, and we have not seen a spike. We opened the beaches weeks ago, and we have not seen a spike. And so we're, I think certain places are beginning to find those few key points. Now, we may see something come up, but those may be easier things that demonstrate here are ways to do some of that. You know, the, the restaurants here reopened at 25%. The next phase would be 50 might that be too much? Might it be more having to do with seating patterns and airflow? Is it indoor, outdoor? Those are things I think that'll be interesting and why it's really important, as you pointed out, for companies to look at this and really look at their situation, their community, the data in their community, the data on where their employees are, and develop that plan based on that.
2: Right. And I'll add an, an additional sort of uh, layer on that, that I think has been, uh, I think, one of the most helpful uh, thought processes as people think through this, that essentially determines risk based on the viral load of the exposure and the time of that exposure. Those are the two key elements to consider so that you could have a very high viral load, as an example, a sneeze, which generates enormous. Uh, transmission of virus in somebody that has the infection to those people around it for a a relatively short period of time, and that would increase uh, and give you an exposure risk. But equally, a low viral load of somebody that's just breathing that has the disease, for example, somebody that's asymptomatic, so they don't have a temperature. We don't know that they have the disease unless we tested for it and found it. So they sit in a restaurant but they sit there for two hours breathing it out, or in the case of, I think it was the South Korean call center, and circulation of air spreads it to all the people locally and it, you know uh, is transmitted with the same level of transmissibility. So that, for me, has been the most effective measure to help people understand. So It's not just about exposure, it's about time of exposure and the viral load, and understanding that requires at least a detailed understanding of uh, viruses, how they spread, the impact of viral load, and so forth.
1: So with that, no vaccine in sight, say, for the next 12, 18 months, even though Trump is saying we'll have one by the end of the year. I think it's doubtful. There are no effective or approved treatments, per se. Remdesivir has gotten some recent attention because of the reduction of the hospital stay from 15 to 11 days, one would assume these are desirable outcomes as there is a discharge. But whether or not remdesivir actually improves mortality, I think, is an open question, if, um, if I'm not mistaken. Is, is that correct, Nick? Uh, yeah.
2: yeah, I think it's good to talk about that. It's obviously raised its head, and uh, unfortunately, we've seen a number of these instances of other Uh, Drugs that were listed as an example of saving grace Uh, they're not remdesivir is not it it certainly was good enough interestingly for a a pretty solid trial that was international multiple countries multi-site and included a placebo arm so for for those listening that don't understand that placebo means that we give you the drug and uh, a proportion of the people getting the drug actually receive what appears to be the drug but it's not, and nobody knows. It's blinded, so nobody is actually aware of who's really getting the drug, and that really gives us a great understanding of whether something is effective or whether it just appears to be effective. So it included a placebo arm. What's positive about the news was that the data coming out was sufficiently positive for them to remove the placebo arm. So they changed the trial because it felt at this point, we were seeing positive enough outcomes. So as you rightly say, Greg, a reduction in the uh, length of, or duration of the disease, um, it didn't change the endpoint, so the mortality wasn't as best as I understand, um, but it did reduce the severity of the disease by length, and that was sufficient for them to remove the placebo, so now everybody is getting the drug in the trial. Uh, because it felt uh, inappropriate to be offering placebo once we'd shown that it was given this positive effect. But it's not a treatment. It's not uh, changed the mortality and, you know, continues to require additional study. And that's true pretty much of all of these uh, attempts to find drugs to treat the condition once you have it. Briefly, let's talk about vaccination and, you know, the development. I think Moderna is the uh, company that everybody's got very excited about. They're uh, an RNA virus uh, target. And to be clear, I think if I recall my readings on this, there are about seven variations on a theme of the types, not the number of trials. The number of trials is somewhere the order of 70 or so for vaccines, but RNA is one of the targets, and that's uh, a specific focus on the piece of the virus that we're essentially attacking or approaching as a, a target. And in this case, Moderna is going after the uh, messenger RNA. But here's my caution around that. This is something we've been trying to do with a number of other viruses for a considerable period of time. They've been trying to do this pre-COVID-19 and to date have got no successful trials as yet. That's not to say that they can't and gosh, I'm rooting for them. I really am. But I wouldn't be backing that as my only course. I think we have to think about other things and other ways to control this disease in the intervening period of time. So I have to ask you,
1: you did not mention hydroxychloroquine. There's been quite a bit of hype and hope, a mixed bag from some of the more credible studies that have been done in in the VA and elsewhere. But what's your take on hydroxychloroquine? Is this uh, an agent that has some promise, or are the studies too tightly defined to actually, in other words, what I'm saying is um, some would say that if there's early in the course with a low relative viral load, then hydroxychloroquine supplemented by azithromycin shows some promising results. Can you give us any perspective on that?
2: Yeah, so to the best of my knowledge, there is no placebo-based study, so we have nothing to compare it against. And again, that creates an extraordinarily difficult data set to uh, determine if there's uh, any efficacy. We know lots about hydroxychloroquine. I've taken it in my past. I've lived in lots of malaria-ridden countries. It was a standard. It's not a particularly safe drug. That's one of the problems. And part of the reason that I didn't mention it is that mentioning it seems to induce people to go after this. Uh, We've already seen certainly at least one death that seems to be associated with uh, the promotion of this as a treatment and, you know, something to take, as you described, early. Uh, I think the clear medical advice here is, If this is an appropriate treatment, which it may be, and I I don't think we know, but we need to understand, and if it is, I can tell you we will ramp up production and put people on it as early as possible and, you know, get that out as quickly as possible. But we need to do that, importantly at this point, safely. And that's in a hospital because it lengthens the QT interval. It has real potential to cause severe cardiac symptoms, that need to be uh, monitored in a healthcare setting. This is not something that people should be saying, I'm going to go out and buy and just protect myself because I think I might have COVID-19, which is likely that you don't unless you've got symptoms. So this is something that needs to be left to the medical professionals. um, And I think that's very, very clear to me. I think if I had a wrap-up, there is no – there's no silver bullet. You are not going to find a single solution <laughs> up until we have a vaccine, and this takes a concerted, scientific-based, thoughtful approach that is customized to individual circumstances.
3: Yeah, and I would just add: at the end of the day, it's up to us as individuals to do the right thing. Or, you know, Great much points. of this is is, is 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 much of this is based on our behavior, and so we have to go ahead and make sure that everybody understands what they should be doing in the appropriate situations based on where we're at in this disease and then do that. The one thing I
1: wanted to add, as the disease profile has been made clear, we now understand that asymptomatic transmission is a much higher risk than was initially thought. And unfortunately, that is what has driven the clinical versus public health model for testing at scale the clinical model is let's identify people who are symptomatic so we can triage them appropriately in an acute setting, whereas testing at scale from a public health perspective is testing the entire population, not just those who present with symptoms. And I think the The studies that have been reported to date have evidenced the fact that asymptomatic spread is a much bigger risk than was originally anticipated. In fact, it drove all the messaging from CDC that the risk is low. The risk is low. We're looking in the rearview mirror. We're not testing anybody. We've got less than 1% of people tested in the United States, but the risk is low.
2: Rule number six of Samuel Shen, the house of God. You won't find a temperature if you don't take it. Same with testing.
0: (laughs) That is the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank Dr. Nick Vander Hayden and my colleague and co-host Fred Goldstein for their time and insights into the current state of the global pandemic, including near-term prospects for mitigation, relief, effective treatment, and ultimately prevention via proven vaccine. For more information, go to www.pophealthweek.com. Do subscribe to our channel and follow our work on Twitter. Via at Pop Health Week, at Dr. Nick1, at FS Goldstein, and at 2 Health Guru. For Pop Health Week, my colleagues Fred Goldstein, Dr. Nick, and Healthcare Now Radio. This is Greg Masters saying, Stay safe, you all. We'll get better together if we toe the line with social distancing, proper hygiene, and by all means, wear those masks when in public.